Turn, if you would, to the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. I've set myself on a uh, audacious goal. We're going to finish off chapter 6, and we're going to do chapter 7. What are the odds of that happening, right? Yeah, of, of chapter 6, right. But it's a really good paragraph. We've been working our way through chapter 6, and we've hit verse 20. And chapter 6 has been dealing with the reality that we are either a slave to righteousness or we are a slave to ungodliness. And chapter, I mean, uh, verse 20 and uh, the rest of the chapter kind of ties this all together. For when you were slaves of sin, that was before you were a believer, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have to pay attention to it, okay? I mean, you just didn't do it. Simple enough. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What good did it do you? What was the fruit of the action? Remember what we're dealing with here. We have righteousness that leads to sanctification that leads to eternal life. We have unrighteousness that leads to death. What fruit did you get? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been, sent, been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its, its end, eternal life. And here's the, one of the most quoted uh, verses in the whole book. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have not memorized that, you ought to memorize that verse. Once again, notice the path. You're going to be a slave to something. This was last week's lesson. You're going to be a slave to something, and there's only two choices. There's not three. There's not a hundred. There's two. You can be a slave to righteousness or a slave to unrighteousness. Having chosen whose slave you are, the results follow from that. Oftentimes, we want to choose a path, and then we complain about the consequences of that path, even though the consequences are inherent in the path itself. Having chosen the path, for the wages of sin is death. Easy question. What are wages? That's what you earn. I go to work, they give me money. Those are my wages. It's not a gift. They don't give it to me out of the goodness of their heart. They give it to me because I earned it. I had a boss one time. Actually, it was my boss's boss's boss, and some people were complaining about something, whatever it was, and he said, you know, I work a week, and at the end of the week, they give me a paycheck, and we're even. I've done what I'm supposed to do. The company has done what it's supposed to do. We're even. I worked. I got wages. The wages of sin is death. If I go down that path, it is the inevitable result. It isn't a possible result. It is the result. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God, okay? What's a gift? I walk up and give you something. You didn't earn it. 
You didn't do anything that merited it. You just got it because it was a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. And that's the end of chapter 6. Now we're going to do chapter 7. And as I said, we're going to try to make it through the whole chapter. The reason is this. First off, it's got a unified theme to it. And I, I didn't want to split it up too many times. The second reason is most of it we've already talked about because I've quoted from chapter 7 repeatedly throughout this series. Half of it is going to deal with the law and our relationship with the law. And if you remember going back to chapter 1 and specifically chapter 2, we've been talking about the law this whole time. The fact that I have a covenant with the law to keep the law to be saved but I can't do that. Or I have a covenant with grace, and I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about the law, but then if you remember when we started chapter 6, we had this whole discussion of I am dead to sin, I don't have to sin, but every one of us in here, every one of us sat there going, yeah, but I do. And so that's the second half of chapter 7. Why is it that the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing? Oh, wretched man that I am. Because you see, sometimes we think that certain passages of the Scripture are either A, too good to be true, or B, are impossible. Okay, I died to sin. That sounds good, but it's not the reality of my everyday life. Well, the scripture is very open and honest, and it deals with the reality as we see it. The problem is, is that there's a struggle going on inside you. There's a struggle between the flesh, which is the worldly way of doing things, and the spirit, both your spirit and God's spirit, who is guiding your spirit to do that which is right. So... We're going to talk about all of that in chapter 7. And the main reason we're going to rush through chapter 7 is because we want to get to chapter 8. That is one of the best chapters in the Bible. <laughs> Trust me, we're not going to rush through chapter 8. We'll try to finish it this year. Okay, maybe not that bad. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law... That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Okay, sounds straightforward enough. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Straightforward, right? My wife is Teresa. If Teresa ran off tomorrow and married somebody else, the law would have something to say about it. Why? Because she is married to me. Now, if I died tomorrow, could happen. If I died tomorrow and Teresa ran off and married someone else, it is not a violation of the law. Same woman, same action, but different context. 
The law, the law that says you are married to this person is no longer valid because this person died. Why is Paul talking about this? You remember back in chapter 6, we died to the law. It no longer has power over us. Let's keep reading. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. It is interesting if you kind of catch the wording, the analogy. It's like he takes the context of being married to a man and that man dying and he kind of extends that to your relationship with Christ as you are now married to Christ. You were married to this, the law, and now you are married to Christ. You know the analogy, right? Christ is the groom and we are the church, which is the bride. That's the picture. You were married to something else, but the law died to you. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. We are to be fruitful. We'll have more discussions about that in the weeks to come. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What does that mean? We were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. Let's look at this. Have you ever known someone? We'll talk about someone else. We won't talk about you. Have you ever known someone that the moment you told them not to do something, in the back of their minds it started going, hmm, I think I'll do that. Hmm. (laughs) Don't touch that. And it becomes the forbidden fruit. It is interesting. It is interesting that... We see this so clearly, and we wonder why it is. Why is it that the moment I find out something is wrong, it increases my desire to want to do it? Why? The law? No, it doesn't. (laughs) Her comment was, the law causes us to sin. And that's the point of this chapter. (laughs) On to the next chapter. Does the law cause us to sin? Well, yeah, sort of. We're going to... Go ahead. Yeah. 
And you're going to address that, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> His observation is that this uh, addresses the problem of sins that the Bible says are sins, but our society says, well, you're just born that way. And in one sense, you are just born that way because you're born a sinner. You're born with a predisposition to do that which violates the word of God. And at this point, I'll tell you the rest of the chapter. Does that mean the law is bad? Remember my statement. Heck no. No, it doesn't. Well, does that mean that the law forces me to do that which is bad? No. No and no. That's the chapter that we're going to see. Then what is it? What is it that forces me, that drives me, that encourages me? How strong or weak a word do we want? We can take a pig. What leads me to do that which is wrong? It is sin living in me. The reality of this chapter, chapter 6, we died to sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Consider, think about, acknowledge the fact that God has done this for you. Whew, great stuff. And then I wake up tomorrow and life stinks. And so do I. It doesn't match chapter 6. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation. What's in between? The reality of our daily life where we take what Christ has given us, his righteousness, and we work it out in our everyday life, and that, in case you don't know, in case you are young enough to not know, that is a struggle. Not a little bit. Every day it is a struggle. Why? Because our body, our flesh, wants to do certain things. And our spirit and God's spirit says, no, you don't have to, you ought not do it, walk this way. And my contention, in case we run out of time, just so you know, is if you're not struggling, it's probably because you've given up. <coughs> or it's another one of those red flags that you weren't really a believer to begin with. But that doesn't sound good. I want it fixed. It will be when you get to heaven. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. The law comes and says, thou shalt not, and your sinful passion says, you want to bet? Whatever it is, I'm going to do it just because you told me not to do it. I don't know if you've ever had a teenager tell you this before. If you didn't tell me what to do, I wouldn't mess up. Wait a minute. What did I just say? If you wouldn't lay down the law, I wouldn't break the law. If there were no speeding limit, I wouldn't break the speeding limit. Go ahead.
No. <laughs> Go read the book of Proverbs. His question is, you know, we, we do hang around with unbelievers. We ought to hang around with unbelievers because that's the way we develop the rapport to be a witness to them. But the dilemma is always how much hanging around produces ungodliness on your part versus righteousness on their part. And it is a struggle. It is a temptation that we all have to deal with. We have to know what we are tempted to and what we can handle through the Holy Spirit, and we need to deal with that. The whole book of Proverbs deals with being a companion of fools and the consequences thereof. The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This ties it back into chapter 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written law. There's a new way of living, which is being guided by the Spirit, and that will be the subject of chapter 8. There's actually some discussion about this verse, whether the Spirit there is your spiritual side or whether it is the Holy Spirit, and my answer is yes. We clearly know from the next chapter, because it's all about being led by the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the only way we're going to walk down this path. But our spiritual side is contrasted in this chapter with our flesh, the side of ours that is being driven by the old man, the sinful nature. So the spiritual side of it is not living in the old way, by the external written code, we are being led by the Spirit. So, the law messed up. The law was wrong because it couldn't do what it was supposed to do. Is that true? What shall we say that the law is sin? I mean, it's easy enough, right? If you didn't tell me what to do, I wouldn't have to break it. End of story. If you didn't set a measuring rod in the midst of the group, we wouldn't know how crooked we are. It's your fault. How many times have we heard this? Yes, Don. Exactly. His observation is we can see the result of that thinking in our culture right now. Who are you, who is God, to tell me what to do? What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now that's an interesting sentence. But we have to remember what the law is. We talked about this back in chapter 2. Throughout the book of Romans, the law is kind of used in a couple of different ways. One of them is the written law, 
brought down from Mount Sinai by Moses, written by the hand of God that says, Thou shalt not. But in the other sense, it is the law that is written in our hearts, our conscience, that makes us aware of what is right and wrong, even in the absence of the written code. As we've seen repeatedly in the book of Romans, what the written code did was just make us more guilty. Because you see, my conscience can be hardened. You know, my conscience says to do something, I say no. The conscience says to do something, I say no. And I keep doing that and doing that and doing that, and it gets harder and harder. And then God sets it before us, written on stone, saying, Thou shalt not. And all of a sudden, I know I'm guilty. But I knew, or I ought to have known, I was guilty because of the law that God has written in my heart. I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, once again, I get into this situation. You have something that I want. I've got this vague idea that I shouldn't want that that you have. I shouldn't want your stuff. That's my conscience telling me you're going the wrong direction. But, you know, I've ignored that for years and years and years. And the written law shows up and says, thou shalt not covet. And I look at that written law and it says, here's my action. Here's the law. That action is wrong because the law told me it was. And then I get into a long debate of why should I do what somebody else tells me to do. Why? Because I have a sin nature and I don't want to do what I don't want to do. I want to do what I want to do. And if I want to covet your stuff, I'm going to covet your stuff. End of story. But the law comes along and says, that's wrong, don't do it. And the question is, are we going to believe it or not? But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. As soon as I saw coveting is wrong, all of a sudden, the next day, I found somebody else's stuff that I wanted to covet. I got into the habit. There's lots of stuff that I want to covet. Why is that? Because the law told it to me and it messed me up? No. Because the law came and highlighted the sin that was in my life already and made me aware of it. And if I feed the sin, the sin will grow. Now, all of a sudden, there's lots of things I want. I want this. I want that. I want, I want, I want. And coveting grew because I was told I shouldn't covet. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Hmm. Sin lies dead. It's interesting. There is sin, right? But you see, sin, the sin that is in me, in one sense is lying there dormant, waiting for somebody to tell me what not to do, and that I'm going to do it. As soon as I find out what I'm not supposed to do, my sin nature says, I want to do that. Why? 
because I'm not supposed to do it. I've used the illustration before in here. Augustine, in his biography, autobiography, Confessions, talks about as a young boy climbing over the fence and sneaking into his neighbor's yard to steal the pears. Why did he do it? He admitted he didn't even like pears. <laughs> but there was something about that fence and something about the fact it was my neighbor's pears that made him desire to go get it. What was that something? It was sin living in us. Are you getting the picture here? There is this thing called sin, and it's alive and well in humanity today. We go all the way back to at least Rousseau, and we develop this idea that all humanity are nice, good, kind people and left to their own devices. That's hogwash. Pick up the newspaper. Yeah, but you know, if you didn't make the rules, people wouldn't break them. That's hogwash. Because God has made the rules, and people break them. Then God's wrong. The law's wrong. If nobody told me what to do, I wouldn't be guilty. Do we think that way? Every day, our society, individuals, think that way. It's your fault. There's a problem, though. First off, God has constructed the universe to operate in a certain way. And he's given us, given us instructions on how to live in that universe that he has created in a certain way. And those instructions are the word of God. It isn't that I can go live some other way, perfectly happy and with no issues and no problems, because, hey, I'm a free autonomous person. No. Why? Back to the end of chapter Six, there is a way that leads to life and there is a way that leads to death. And you don't get to choose the consequences, you just choose the path. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It is interesting, he's been talking about us and we and them and he's, pretty much gotten down here just to me, Paul. He's talking about himself. There was a time when I was ignorant and I thought I was okay, and then I realized that there was a law and I realized that I enjoyed breaking it. I thought I was alive because I didn't know the truth. I thought I was alive until the law told me, don't do that. There is some discussion about this passage, whether this is dealing with all of humanity and breaking humanity down into sections, and at some point the law is revealed, and at that point man is no longer innocent. Um, the other idea is that it's talking about Paul as an individual. Okay? There are those who take this passage to mean that there is an age at which you don't understand sin, and at some point you understand what it is, oftentimes referred to as the age of accountability, and then past that point you know you're doomed. 
I hate to tell it to, to all of y'all, you're past that point. <laughs> Just in case there were any wonders, you've passed that point. You know what you ought to do, and you've probably done something else. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Here is the old covenant. Follow the law from the day you're born till the day you die, and you will be saved. Voila. Sounds great. It's a very finite list. Go for it. But sin is at work in your body, and the moment it saw commandment number eight, it says, I'll go break that one. And then there's nine, I'll break that one too. What about 10? In fact, I'll, I'll invent 11, 12, and 13 and break those too. That's just the way our sin nature works. That which could have brought me life brought me death. Why? Because it's messed up. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's stop right there. We who believe, rightfully so, that we are saved by grace, oftentimes begin to look at the law and say, it's a wretched thing. It is a wretched thing if you're trying to use it to earn your salvation because you can't do it. But the law itself is a reflection of the character of God. You might as well say God is a wretched thing if you're going to say the law is a wretched thing. But you know what? There are those in our society who believe God is a wretched thing. Why? Because God stands in the way of them doing what they want to do. Hmm. But the law is righteous, the law is holy, and the law is good. Yes, go ahead. Well, I'm saved by grace. Mm -hmm. It does not save me from cancer, heart attack, stroke, Alzheimer's, or anything. Mm -hmm. No, sin gets me there. Yeah. This morning, or any other day, that I'm on the highway, and I'm, by the way, the only one qualified to drive. <laughs> I don't know why the rest of you get on the road. I'm the only one who knows that. <laughs> I get on the road. <laughs> why do we do that what is there inside of us that causes us to do that that something is sin it isn't the law it is not the law telling us what to do that's the problem it's us that's the problem Somebody once sent a question. They were sending it to lots of different people. Sent it to G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? And his response was, I am. We are. We are the problem. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Is it the sin's fault? I mean, is it the law's fault? Okay, the law is good. I'll grant you that. 
But it just brought death to me. It's the law's fault. If there hadn't been a judge, if there hadn't been a policeman around that corner hiding behind that sign, they wouldn't have caught me. It's the policeman's fault. Do you see the pattern forming here? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good. The law is good. My sinful nature looked at that law and said, it says don't do this, I think I'll do that. The problem is not with the law that says don't do this. The problem is with the sin that says I think I'll do that. It was sin producing death in me through what was good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Sin might be shown for what it truly is, a violation of the will of God. It isn't just a mistake. Oh, I added 2 plus 3 and I accidentally wrote down 6. It's just a mistake. No. It is a moral failure. You are at war with God. Your sin nature looks at the will of God and says, No, I'm not going to do that. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure, ever-increasing sin. Why is that necessary? Because we live in our petty little sins and we don't know that they're real sins and we begin to think it's okay. You know, it's like we measure ourselves on a curve against our neighbors. And you know, my neighbor's pretty wretched and so I must be better than him, therefore I'm okay. We need to know that sin is a violation of the will of God. Whatever your neighbor does, whatever your society does, whatever anyone else does, God is the judge. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And there it is right there. The law is from God. God is spiritual. The law is spiritual, but I am driven by my flesh. For I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul, Paul, because at this point, it's just I, I, I am doing this, is getting to the point where he knows what a sinner he really is. It is interesting. There's actually a huge debate about this particular passage. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Is Paul talking about an unbeliever at this point? Or is he talking about his life as a believer? Because you see, some of this would lead you to believe that, well, this guy's not a believer. I mean, go back to chapter 6. I died to sin. It's done with. Put it aside. Well, then, if I died to it, why am I keep having this struggle? So he must be talking about 
Paul before he became a believer. When I was not a believer, I mean, when I was, yeah, when I was not a believer, I, I, I couldn't do what was right. But I'm not sure that's true. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's not true. I think he is talking about himself and us right now as a believer. Well, that doesn't sound very much fun. No, it doesn't. He's talking about the reality of sanctification. Chapter 6. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Chapter 8. Walk by the Spirit. Go where the Spirit leads you. But he knew that if he presented chapter 6 and went straight to chapter 8, you would sit there and go, you must be some super saint because you're not me. We needed to understand that our sin nature is still embedded in our flesh, and as long as we are on this earth, we are going to be struggling against it. Does that mean it's okay to sin? No. We're supposed to struggle against it. To me, that's the interesting passage of this. In one sense, you could argue that the unbeliever doesn't struggle. Okay? He just does it. The believer knows what is right. Why? God has revealed it to us. He has revealed it to us by the Holy Spirit living in our lives. And we look at that and we say no. Oops. No, we say yes. Oh, we say no. Oh, we say yes. And we struggle and we struggle and sometimes we win a struggle and sometimes... And we struggle in this life. And that's what Paul is dealing with right here. Is this an encouraging passage? In one sense, yes, and in one sense, no. It would be so much easier if I were the evangelist and I stood up here and say, come to Christ and all of your life would be a, will be a bed of roses. But you know that's not true. You know it's not true. It is encouraging because we realize first that this is Paul struggling just like I, I struggle. It is the reality of all, all believers. Do we win some? Yes. Do we progress in sanctification? Yes. It's like I said in here before, you know, I was a math major. You start with arithmetic and you memorize this and you keep moving up to greater and greater math and I always thought it was interesting because I always seemed to learn the last math class while taking the next math class because you just had to assume that you knew that stuff I mean there's nothing like taking calculus to learn algebra because you just have to know it now do you reach the point where you know it all no you just learned the last lesson and you struggle through the next lesson. And that is the process of sanctification. And that will continue as long as we're in this world. When we die, the flesh is taken away. 
And to use the biblical terms, it is glorification. The last taint of our sin nature is removed from us. And that will be good. That will be good. For I do not understand my own actions. You ever have a child do something and you go, why did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> you know, to the mere per I mean, I remember as a child getting a BB gun. It's actually my brother's BB gun. And I was outside shooting at tin cans or something, and there was a light bulb on the back porch. <laughs> and I was just curious if I could hit it. I did. It was a good shot. Why did I do that? I was just stupid. No. It's a sin nature in us. I don't know why I do what I do. I just do it. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. This isn't saying that the law is wrong. I'm, I'm acknowledging. The moment I do it, my sin nature drives me to do it. Therefore, if my sin nature told me to do it, it must be good. Not what I did. The law must be good. Because my sin nature looks at that which is good and says, eh, I'll do the opposite. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Huh. I know that nothing good dwells in me. You know, right, that humility is a virtue. Throughout Scripture, we are told to humble ourselves or God will humble us. God has no interest in the proud. Those who believe they're doing it on their own. He doesn't have any interest in the proud who are outside the church, and he doesn't have any interest in the proud who are inside the church. I know that there's nothing good in me. Me. Now, we're going to talk about, next week, the Spirit living in us. But that's the Spirit. In my flesh, in my flesh, I know I can't do it. You may accept Christ and think, okay, I'm going to be the best Christian out there, and you rush out there and you fall flat on your face because you were trying to do it. Or you may run real hard and have everybody believing you're a good Christian, and they never see you fall on your face. But inside, you're falling on your face. Paul just acknowledges the fact that there's nothing good inside him in his flesh. For I desire to do what is right, but not I have the desire, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. No. His observation was the devil made me do it. And the answer to that is no. 
You could almost look at this and say that it's kind of schizophrenic in that he's blaming it on something other than him. No, he's blaming it on the sin that is resident in him. He sees the source of the struggle. I want to do what is right. I read my Bible. I see what I ought to do. And I get on the highway and somebody cuts me off and it's snap. I do something else. Why? Because the me that wants to do what is right is at war with the me that is enslaved to my sin nature. Have we rubbed this in enough? Can we just get on to chapter 8? But there is no getting to chapter 8 unless you acknowledge chapter 7. Because then you're going to begin to think there's something wrong. It doesn't work. No, there is something wrong. It's called sin. Now, if I do what I want, do not want, it is no longer me, no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law, a principle, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. That phrase is what convinces me that he's not talking about himself as an unbeliever. He's talking about himself as a believer. Go read Psalm 119 about delighting in the law. How can you delight in the law? Because the law is a reflection of God's character. It is a reflection of who God is. And I don't have to keep it as a covenant of salvation. I delight in the law. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. I delight in the law in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There comes a time in the life of the unbeliever where they have to address this question. Who, how can I be saved? Who, how can I be made right with God? Throughout the scripture, you have people approaching Jesus, approaching the apostles. What must I do to be saved? But here's the kicker. As believers, as believers, every day we engage in the struggle and we have to ask, who is going to help me win the fight today? Not tomorrow, not yesterday, today. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who today is going to help me fight the fight of sanctification? Is it just me and sin fighting to the death? And the answer is no. Thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I acknowledge that there is a struggle. I acknowledge there is a fight. And some days, some days are hard, and some days are harder. And that's the state of our life. Don't think, I'm going to become a believer, and all my health issues are going to go away. There's enough of us in this class who know that's not true. Don't think that I'm going to become a Christian and all of my relationships are going to be perfect. There's enough of us in here who know that's not true. What God promises is that he who began the good work will complete it. But you know, I fight today and I fought yesterday and I fought the day before Don't you think just sometimes I begin to feel like I'm doomed? Therefore, chapter 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, I'm fighting the fight, but fighting the fight doesn't mean you lost. In fact, it means you're on the right side. If you're not fighting the fight, you've either given up or with your inner man you do not delight in the law of God and you never have. And you need to understand that if we died with Christ, our love of the sin nature died with it. Do we still struggle? Every day of our lives. Will we someday, through the grace and mercy of God, win that struggle? And the answer is yes. Let's close in prayer. Go ahead. Yeah, you never know. Dearly Father, thank you. Thank you that you have provided the power over sin. Help us, help us in our daily struggles that we can conform to the image of Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.